strong voices. We don't need to sugarcoat things, let's put it that way. We need to be real, we need to be honest. We're in trouble and the only way that we're going to get through this is by working together. We have to get serious about closing the gap and I don't think governments have been serious. We need the scientists to help us to reduce the emissions and we need to get communities and people out on country and learning about the environment and reconnecting with landscapes again, just the way Aboriginal people have done for thousands of years. communities have had the solutions to end this injustice for 30 years. The governments have chosen to not prioritise saving black lives. Enough is enough. Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to Strong Voices. Uh, we're coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here on Arundel Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. We, uh, we are on 8 FM here in Alice Springs and Bantua and are also, of course, coming to you through the website at karma.com.au. Today is Friday. It's uh, November 12th. My name's Kyle Dowling and uh, I'll be your host here on Strong Voices for today. Well, coming up on the program, a new report looking into two Tungandjura family violence uh, primary prevention programs say explicit messaging can change attitudes towards violence against women as well as gender stereotypes in Aboriginal communities. We'll hear from people who spoke at the launch of that report on the program today. Also, we'll hear a tribute to Arundel Man, footballer, leader and advocate for Central Australian uh, Indigenous rights, uh, Kumunjay Ferber, who passed away a week ago. But first, an Australian First Nations delegate to COP20, the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, says Australia is so far behind every other nation on the planet in regards to climate change issues, it just isn't funny anymore. Speaking from Glasgow, Scotland, uh, Pastor Ray Minikin says that despite the presence of the global Indigenous community at all of these uh, UN gatherings, their voices are still not being heard. If you go from COP1, the first one in Rio, some 26 years ago, Indigenous voices have been there and have spoken, but that's one of the voices that hasn't been heard clearly in these big forums. And we've echoed all the things that we wanted to... In our country here, we're looking at all the issues around mining and fracking and uh, the ways in which our waters are being poisoned, as well as the, the flow of waters... Um, either in New South Wales or another part of the country. We've been at the forefront of all of these kind of things for ages. It's nothing new for us. The residual results of Terra Nullius and the wide Australia policy, we're still living out those uh, those kind of uh, concepts in our present day. We've got a long, long journey ahead of us, a long struggle. We've done our, our analysis of, of our issues. We've put them out there. Uh, in terms of the priorities that we want to put in there, we want we want, we want to see the, you know, uh, cutting carbon dioxide. We want to see a, a commitment to re- renewables in this country. We want to be a part of that. that. That that's a really important thing for us to come to grips with is that the old economy that put all of us on the dole and uh, gave us basic cards. We don't want to be a part of that that old economy. Uh, so we've got to have a look at what what's available and the opportunities that are available. In the new economy that's coming up, where they're, you know, where they're going to get rid of, uh, hopefully, 
coal mining and all these other kinds of things that are destroying our country and come in with other kinds of renewables. One of the things I've been saying here at this particular conference is this. We've looked after country for the past 60,000 years. We've kept it in very, very good condition. Our waters have been pure. Our forests, our lands, our animals have never gone hungry, nor have we. Our ocean waters have been pristine and looked after us. Everything has been kept in that particular pristine condition. Yet, 225 years later, we're in this predicament. Now, we Indigenous peoples are at the forefront of all of this climate change stuff. As, as I've just mentioned before, all that suffering. And we now have scientific proof, uh, medical proof, that climate change and our illnesses are connected. You've got a sick country, you've got a sick people. You've got a sick people, you've got a sick country. And so we've got to make sure that we're a part of the new future. We've got to, we've got to make sure that we put our agendas uh, on, on the table. And they got to ha- they're going to have to start listening to it. And I know that this government not listening. One of the things that really, really annoyed me the most when I walked into COP here to see the Australian Pavilion, which they funded, is that the, the, p- the pavilion is, is propped up. This is the Australian government's pavilion where you know, they're telling the world what they're doing about climate change. It's all propped up by mining companies. Can you believe that? I'm still trying to get my head around it. It's just so hypocritical that this government would pay to bring these all of these companies. You know, you've got uh, Twiggy Forest and all these characters walking around here treating this fine place like, like it's a trade fair. And they're the Aboriginal boys, we've got no place to go. We had to pay our own way to get over here. We're the ones who are suffering the most from climate change. Not only our, our Indigenous peoples here, but around the globe. And they all say, you've got to talk to the blackfellas, you've got to talk to the Aboriginal people. Well, I haven't seen any government come and talk to me. But then again, I probably wouldn't want to talk to them anyways, because I know that they're not listening. Because we've always had a voice here in this country. It's always been there. We haven't been silent, whether it's been on the streets or in phone calls or in letters or in Parliament. We've always had a voice. They know that we're here, but they just don't want to listen. It's that listening part that's hard to get through. All that mining stuff comes out of our country, out of our land. We don't have a treaty. That's first and foremost. Secondly, we don't have a voice. And that means a voice in Parliament. Uh, That is our voice, uh, not something that is manufactured by the government. And the third thing is, you know, we we need to be truth-tellers in this country. They're the three things from the statement from the heart. Voice, truth, treaty. You can't get away from those three things. Whichever way, one, way you want to play it, whether it be a treaty first or a voice first or, or a truth, it doesn't matter to me. Just get one of them going and get it going to, as soon as possible so that we can get uh, some kind of traction in terms of what we want to see into the future. We're way beyond, you know, we're past the, the starting line. We're so far behind every other nation on this planet that it's just not humorous anymore. And it's not funny, it's just shocking how far behind we are. And so we need the collective effort of good-hearted, thinking Australians who will support Aboriginal people to achieve that. We do need a voice. We just need a good, strong Aboriginal voice to actually say, hang on a sec, the problem we have is we don't have the veto powers 
to stop these things at the community level. And two, we don't have the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People says, you know, the things about prior consent. We don't have those that consensual process in place here. So free, prior and informed consent is a part of a traditional owner's rights. For me, this climate change stuff is a human rights issue. It's, it's, you know, it's just not only our Indigenous peoples, but it's a human rights issue. That means we have to look at the UN and other countries to help support our, our endeavours. COP27, uh, the next one is in Egypt. And I think I would, you know, there's only four of us over here. We've all had our own, we had to try to find our own ways to get across here, as compared to the government who funded all the mining companies to get over here. We need to get our voices heard in these places. And so I'm, I'd encourage all of our people to come over to Egypt next year and voice our concerns. That's the only way we're going to do it. We're going to have to just start jumping up and down in, in other people's countries there and try to embarrass our own government as to what the things that we want to see them do. And uh, one of the thoughts that I had here, and I proposed to, to some of our mob there, is maybe we should go into COP27 Egypt and set up a tent embassy there so that we've got some kind of recognition of uh, our sovereignty because... That's the only way we're going to do that. I know I've been wandering around in this big, big thing here. We've got no sort of place that we can come to. I can't go to the Australian government's pavilion because it's, it just makes me angry. And so I've got to find a place where I can just feel at peace with myself. And um, if I bring my people over into this kind of, kind of situation too, anybody, you know, they're going to feel the same thing. But we need a place where we can come together as a, as a, as a collective and, and voice our voice our concerns as loud as we can. That was Australian First Nations Delegate to COP20, Pastor Ray Minikin. We're going to head to a quick break on Strong Voices and we'll be right back shortly. What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Well, on Thursday, a report was released which examined the effectiveness of family prevention programs in Central Australia. The report called Randa Randa Apma sorry, uh, which means girls and boys are equal in Aranda, was co-authored by researchers from the Equality Institute, a feminist agency working to advance gender equality. Kamas Philippe Perez has more in this report. The research examined the influence of two projects from the Tanganjira Family Violence Prevention Program, which focused on challenging gender roles. One of those projects is called Girls Can, Boys Can, and there's a partnership between the Tanganjira program and the Larapinta Child and Family Centre. It produces resources about breaking down fixed gender roles in early childhood. The other project is called Old Ways Are Strong and was developed with Alice Springs-based iTalk Studios. That project challenged colonial attitudes to Aboriginal relationship and gender roles, specifically that violence against Aboriginal women was embedded in culture. Shirlene Campbell, who is a coordinator of the Tanganjira Women's Family Safety Group, spoke at the report's launch held at the Alice Springs Desert Park. She says it will give strong evidence on how family violence prevention programs should be conducted. Positive, meaningful and respectful messages for, po- uh, for posters, books and clothing and toys that show the healthy, fun and equal and respectful relationship between girls and boys. 
and with the strength of Aboriginal children, families and communities. Again, kids thrive when they are free to be whoever they want to be and be free from discrimination. Fellow coordinator at the Tangangira Women's Family Safety Group, Carmel Simpson, says the projects were a result of hard work of leaders in town camps in and around Alice Springs. Without all of your dedication, leadership, commitment and courage to speak out against family and domestic violence, these projects working to prevent violence against women in Vantua but also around Australia, they wouldn't exist. Thank you for all that you do from the bottom of our hearts. It's an absolute privilege um, to work alongside of you. So to our partners at the Larapinta Child and Family Centre, um, thank you for all of the work that you've done so far and it has been an absolute pleasure and privilege to work with all of you and thank you so much for all of the work that you've done as well. Also to iTalk Studios as well for the work on the Old Ways of Strong project. The Randa Randa Ampa Male Purai report concerningly found that 52% of respondents out of 225 participants found violence was justifiable in one way or another. It also found that respondents were also more likely to justify violence in cases associated with jealousing, which is defined in the report as a verb used in some Central Australian contexts to describe controlling behaviours that are often performed publicly to sanction real or imagined sexually inappropriate behaviour. But it also found that bucking traditional gender roles was not likely to justify violence. Manager of Family and Community Engagement at Connected Beginnings, Alice Springs, Marley Wells, says the report showed there was a need to convince governments to invest in prevention programs. So it's the first ever research project in primary prevention in the Northern Territory. There's not much evidence, or there's no evidence basis at all for family and domestic violence here, and there's actually not much around the world. In, about what works in primary prevention. So this report's really special because it gives us a lot of practical advice on how to go forward and what we can do from here. So if the government listens to nothing else from the report, we want the takeaway to be that there needs to be uh, dedicated primary prevention work in the Northern Territory and that there's so many people trying to do this work and support families in addition and on top of all of the other work that they're doing, which is just impossible. There's no pretending that it's easy and the work needs funding and it needs resources. So a long-term commitment to anti-violence, which isn't affected by government swings, must be implemented to make any real change. And this report really shows what people think. Ms Wells also says the findings in the report show there needs to be specific messaging for young people and that funders and policy makers should be aware that this approach works. What I think is particularly noteworthy is that the strength-based the strength messaging um, that sticks really positive and shows particularly Aboriginal children in a, in a way that they're not often represented has made a real difference to people. It's just really beautiful to see the gender equitable messaging um, and explicit straight out messaging is what's worked best and that's really stood out through this project. And the staff are committed to making a difference but it really has to be matched by the government's long-term commitments um, to all of our work and our lives. The Northern Territory member for Guatja, Chansey Paik, also spoke at the launch. He called the report fantastic and it was important such evidence-based research was supported by his government. 52% 
of the participants in this report thought that it was still okay for violence in some way, shape or form to be conducted as a measure. That's horrific. That is the landscape that we are currently living in. And that is absolutely not good enough. So we need to continue to do that work. The only way we can continue to see those positive results that we have been able to highlight through this report is by continuing to support programs like this program. As a politician, I'm in a position to be able to work with my colleagues and with the parliament to try and drive that change. Now, I know that through this we can continue to make laws to really come down on the perpetrator so that they feel the full effects of the law. And that's what we'll do. But what this report has highlighted is that the greatest impact we can have is at the start, is educating people to say what is okay and what is absolutely not okay. Mr Paik acknowledged both the women's and men's family violence prevention programs at Tanganjira. He agrees that more work needs to be done to change gender-based attitudes within Aboriginal culture. Aboriginal culture does not support family domestic violence. Anyone that tells you that is completely incorrect and doesn't understand Aboriginal culture. Now, whilst Aboriginal culture is beautiful, is strong, and we value our language, our law, and our culture, and there are certainly aspects of our culture that some may see as brutal, as harsh, particularly around ceremonial times and when we lose a loved one, inflicting pain is a way of showing respect to that person. But family domestic violence towards women, girls, is completely unacceptable and is not part of our culture. That's the work we need to continue to do, is to educate people what is okay and what is not okay. And I'm so thankful for um, the Lara Pinter uh, Family Child Program because this is where it starts. We need to look at extending this program so that it's not just in those very, very early stages when a young person uh, is coming into being cared for or or in preschool. We need to make sure that we continue to work with our education minister here in the Northern Territory. So this is rolled out across our Northern Territory schools. Because a young boy or girl in a school across the Territory should never ever feel afraid that they might want to have a job that the current society says no because of your gender. That was the member for Guadja ending that report there from Kamas Feli Perez. You're tuning into Strong Voices. We're going to go to a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll be hearing a tribute for the, the uh, for Kumanche Ferber. You're listening to Strong Voices on Kama Radio. <laughs> well, tributes are flowing for highly respected Arand man Kumanje Ferber, who passed away peacefully in Abantuala Springs last week, surrounded by his family. A member of the Stolen Generations, Kumanjay was removed from his family who were living in the Gap Cottages as a small boy and taken to Croker Island in the Top End. Lifetime friend and former Gap resident Owen Cole pays a personal tribute.
My first memory of Harold was down the gap. Harold's um, one year older than me, and, and I recall him being part of a really large extended Ferber family. And uh, we were all just young kids wandering around the gap, climbing the hill and collecting bullet guts and tripe from the abattoirs when they'd done the killing and taken home in triumph to our mothers who cooked it up for the whole gap. So um, that's the fond memories of uh, walking around collecting offal and shooting birds. I can recall um, down the Gap Cottages a large number of kids being removed from the Gap and the one thing that stands out and you'll remember for the rest of your life is the grandmothers and the mothers screeching while welfare picked up the kids. So there was probably, i got recollections of about 20 young people around my age and um, Harold was one of those kids who were taken, taken away along with his sister Margaret and Trackatal Mouth and the two brothers went as well and there was walkers, there was heaps of them. So he went up to Crocop Island and um, the, the next time I bumped into Harold was um, when, we, when we were studying together down at the um, University of South Australia and he was doing um, a community development course and I was doing a business course. So... Um, we um, connected up again and, um, you know, started telling all the yarns and trying to, um, you know, make those connections after all those years. And, uh, and of course, I've always been connected to the Aboriginal families in Alice Springs and the Ferbers are a significant family in Alice Springs. So it is like old times trying to reconnect. Carol did talk about his time in Croker and also in concert with uh, Tracker Toolmouth. Of course, Tracker was always the, the one who was the smartest of the all the Alice Springs kids that was at Croker Island, and um, Harold wasn't so smart in the eyes of Tracker. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, they're the sort of contradictory messages. On one hand, they had someone who really cared for them on, on the island, a young lady, I can't remember her name, but um, she had a big influence on the young people there, got them to read freedom books and, you know, about rights and um, you know, the, the, the fights of the African-Americans. So they started to politicise them um, pretty early, but um, I know for a fact that they were pretty traumatised, as everyone would be if you was dragged away from your family and um, taken, you know, thousands of kilometres away and having to mix with them and forge new relationships. But just losing connection with your family and your culture, it, it's a traumatic. And a lot of those people, even, even though they came back to Alice Springs later on in life, they found it difficult to really make, you know, the full connection with their families. And, uh, you know, some were better at it than others. And I think Harold, you know, he, he suffered and it was, a, it was a struggle, just like many others who came back. He was instrumental in getting the Stolen Generations movement up and running. And uh, he was chair at one time in Alice Springs. And he brought a whole lot of Stolen Generation people together, including people from far away as the islands that, um, that had moved from Central Australia and uh, never got back to Central Australia. And he brought a lot of them down. I can remember a get-together 
at the telegraph station and uh, and amongst them was um, one of my aunties who was taken away and um, Harold was the rock that drove it in um, Alice Springs. I'd heard of Harold down in um, Adelaide that he was a gun footballer with um, North Adelaide, and um, and I knew that um, that they'd been successful at um, winning a premiership, and I think it was under 19s. And I, in actual fact, I was um, playing under 19s football for Sturt, and um, and. Uh, Roughly about the same time, and even though we didn't, we probably crossed paths um, on the field. Um, you know, I didn't get to actually see Harold play with North Adelaide. But anyone who, who can win a under 19s premiership in the South Australian National Football League has got to be a pretty good player. I mean, you know, it would have been the equivalent of um, league standard in Darwin, and probably twice as or at least half as good as um, one and a half times better than the Alice Springs competition, the Central Australian Football League. And then he went up to um, up to Buffalo's and, uh, you know, and we just got... We had family up there and connections and I know that he was a gun footballer. Then he came back and I think he played in three premierships um, in, in uh, Piney Foot, with the Piney Football Club and I was told that he was an absolute gun midfielder and um, unfortunately I was still down in Adelaide and it wasn't until after I came back and um, and we started uh, you know conversing that he told me that um, that he'd played with some of the best footballers that he pulled on a Guernsey for Pioneers the Braves, the Dougie Turners, you know, they just an absolute they used to probably win about um sixty five percent of the grand finals um over you know twenty years. So they were absolutely brilliant footballers. And of course then he was just a born a leader, a wonderful Arundel leader who was really visionary, you know, and um saw things like the the potential for the Desert People Centre. And uh, I can remember him talking to me and um, saying, we don't need to import knowledge from outside of Central Australia. We've got all the knowledge. We've lived in this country for 50,000 years or more. And we just have to adapt and use that knowledge to our advantage. And he he was, uh, you know, instrumental in uh, getting the the Desert um, People Centre up and the Desert Knowledge Precinct and... Um, he was chair of um, uh, of, of the um, uh, Desert People Centre, and and he played played a key role with the uh, Desert Precinct Steering Committee to get the, the wonderful facility that's still underutilised um, to to a significant degree to this day. And he was always trying to trying to um, you know bolster what has taken place there. I think it's a wonderful facility. And it's a pity that the Northern Territory government doesn't appreciate, you know, the benefits that could could accrue to the community if we used it better and further. That's where his his view of locating the Indigenous National Art and Culture Centre to locate it out on, on um, Desert Knowledge Precinct land, and um, he was he organised for seventy five thousand square metres to be set aside for that. Unfortunately, the Northern Territory government pinched the um, art gallery, and then decided they're going to plonk it on Anzac Oval, which um, you know 
invoked all the fury of uh, local people like myself and and the vast majority of the population who oppose it and think it's one of the silliest propositions that's ever been proposed by a government. Harold was the definition of a political activist. <laughs> he he was really aggressive. He was really aggressive when it came to um, subject matters like Indigenous art and Indigenous culture. He believed that government should keep their hands off it. They knew nothing about it and that was should be um, decided upon and managed by Indigenous Indigenous people. So he was an activist. He, he, he was there um, when, when uh, you know, going right back to Joby Alke Peterson when he come to Alice Springs and you know and they and Tracker and um, and uh, quite a few of the locals uh, met uh, Joby Alke at the Gap and tried to stop his entry into Alice Springs. Harold was there. He was there when um, a lot of the protests would were taking place, and you could guarantee that he was somewhere involved in the organising and just about every protest rally that took place in Alice Springs over a quarter of a century. We were two grouchy old bastards together, to be quite honest, and uh, and as we got older, the grouchier we became. And uh, we had a love-hate relationship and that went right through to the very end, you know. He was forever trying to um, growl at me and I was forever telling him where to go. So uh, so it, it was a, a unique um, relationship, you know, but we appreciated uh, our joint commitments. We were both dedicated to try and uh, get the, you know, the Indigenous... Uh, art and culture centre up and running on Desert Knowledge Precinct and we were both determined and uh, you know I went and seen him the day before he passed away and we agreed together that we'd keep the movement, the anti-Anzac Obel movement and once we'd sorted that out he said uh, the Indigenous National Art and Culture Centre would sort itself out. He believed that, um, you know, that eventually Ghana would have to make way and stop his his trenchant opposition for all things a Desert Knowledge Precinct and appreciate what a wonderful facility it, they've got out there. It's actually controlled by the, a Northern Territory Government instrumentality, uh, Desert Knowledge Australia. And uh, so Ferb's... He, he pledged that um, that we'd continue to fight, and I said, "Well, definitely, long as I've got breath in my body, I'll do it, and uh, and I'll stay true to that." I think he'd like to be remembered as a visionary, a person who challenged the status quo, and was prepared to stand up and put his point of view across strongly. He was one who was, you know, let's get together, collaborate. But um, let's let's you got to get off your behind and actually drive change. So he was all for changing things for the better of Aboriginal people. He was a wonderful, inspirational leader. That was Owen Cole paying a personal tribute to Kuman J Ferber. You're tuning in to Strong Voices this uh, Friday afternoon. We're soon going to be hearing a bit of a wrap-up of some of the news stories from around uh, the week. But first, we're going to go to a quick song, and then we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ricky Bloomfield, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, you are listening to Strong Voices this Friday, the 12th of November. You're joined by me, Carl Dowling, and I'm now joined in the studio 
Pakama's uh, Fleet Press. Good afternoon, Fleet. Where to, Kyle? How are you going? Not too bad. We've had a nice rainy week. Um, Indeed. Yeah. What did you think of the river as well before we this was dive the, in? This was the first time that I saw Lira Mbantua or Todd River flow, and uh, boy, it flowed. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say it was uh, quite a pleasure. Like, it was really nice to see it. I, I don't know what came over me when I saw it uh, flow like that. I suppose being here for a number of years and not seeing it flow mm. uh, made me wonder, does this fit, does this river actually flow? People had told me about it, but uh, <laughs> now I've got evidence. So, yeah, it was really nice to see, to say the least. Well, of course, there have been a lot of stories apart from the, the rain that we've been seeing, mm. not just here in Alice Springs, but you know across the country. Uh, the big one, though, is COVID, of course. There's been a lot of developments here in the Territory. What's sort of the latest in this space at the moment? Well, people would be aware that we had a small outbreak towards the end of last week in both Catherine and the Greater Darwin region. Uh, A lot of people say that that um, has subsided now in terms of the alert uh, that uh, the Chief Minister had, I suppose, put the two areas under. Um, People are still... Under some restrictions, masks will probably are still required to be worn, particularly in Darwin and in Catherine. Um, and people are just basically uh, asked to test if they display any symptoms. But we're seeing a mandate coming in this upcoming weekend as well. So people might be remember around about a month ago, um, Michael Gunner pretty much announced the road map out of. Uh, virus uh, COVID restrictions and essentially requested uh, frontline workers who who were in contact with vulnerable people needed to get at least one dose of the COVID vaccine by the end of today. So tomorrow we're going to be seeing businesses ramp up their asking of people whether or not they're vaccinated or not Um, and uh, essentially Everyone who is a frontline worker who gets in contact with a vulnerable person, which has been pretty much touted as a very wide-ranging mandate, and I, I, you would probably say like 98% of all Territorians yeah. would have some sort of uh, interaction with a vulnerable person. Um, it, it's uh, far-reaching and, yeah, the consequences will co- be brought down on people who are unvaccinated in the Territory. I have noticed those questions to Gunner at a lot of the presses in terms of, you know, what's his thoughts on the potential of people either, you know, losing work or even businesses, you know, feeling like they, they may want to shut down if they, you know, either don't want to be checking their workers to get vaccinated or themselves not wanting to get vaccinated. So yeah. Well, fines are going to be imposed on those businesses, mm. I think, of up to $25,000 and more, and $5,000 for individuals who remain unvaccinated and still continue going to work. So um, we will see what happens. We have seen some fracas up in Darwin and uh, in terms of pro- protests from people who talk about choice and say that this is uh, heavy-handed from the government. Um so it remains to be seen what will happen. Uh, there's been some concerns from businesses about worker shortages and stretched resources in hospitals as well because there's been some reports of nurses not wanting to get vaccinated as well. So uh, we will we'll wait and see. 
And of course, as well, I, I understand we did see a bit of a tip uh, tick up with some of the vaccines from that outbreak that we saw recently as well. So I'm, I'm yeah. wondering how much that possibly could have tipped the numbers. Well, I think um, there has been big awareness from the community uh, with this recent outbreak uh, to get themselves booked into a, to a vaccination appointment. I'm going off memory here, but I remember on the day that the first COVID case was announced on Catherine, the booking system was uh, pretty much full for the next day um, within an hour of Michael Gunner making the announcement of the first case in Catherine. Yeah. Now, I know that um, on Saturday, 900-odd people got themselves a COVID vaccine where throughout this pandemic or since where vaccines were available, the average of people who received a vaccine on a Saturday was around about 200. So comparing 900 vaccines to 200 vaccines on a Saturday is just unbelievable. I think I also saw a graph that said on Friday there were like around about 2,000 people who administered a vaccine in, in the space of a day, which like far outstripped the amount of uh, other Fridays yeah. uh, in terms of vaccine numbers. So there's certainly a take-up. Um, it will remain to be seen as to uh, whether they get their double dose uh, by Christmas time, which is when the next mandate comes in. Yeah. Um, I should also mention that recent federal data says there's been a significant increase of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Territorians who've had at least one jab since the recent outbreak. Um, data has shown that as of Thursday, 69% of First Nations Territorians have had one jab. Um, Commonwealth public health vaccinations experts say the uptake in remote communities, particularly in the top end, is between two to four times higher than what the Territory was experiencing prior to the outbreak. Right. And uh, okay. East Arnhem's been cited as an example by the Commonwealth where vaccination rates have increased 4 to 5% on average for the week. And I understand people probably would have seen the bit of criticism that has been coming out in terms of the different data that yeah. the Northern Territory has been presenting as compared to the federal data. And I understand some of the Aboriginal health organisations have been speaking a little bit on that as well. Yeah, yeah indeed. The um, uh, Aboriginal Medical Services uh, of the Northern Territory, um, uh, otherwise AMSAN. known as AMSANT, yeah. uh, had some choice words for the Gunner government in terms of taking up the data uh, that reflects jabs in arms in the Territory, um, as have the Central Land Council and the Northern Land Council. They say it's not accurate and is uh, uh, quite gammon, as uh, one person said from the AMSAT. I can't remember the gentleman's name. Uh, Dr John Boffer from AMSAT, who is a local doctor here, who many people may know with his role with Congress as well, um, essentially saying that this type of data puts vulnerable people in the Territory at risk. So um, it's, it's, there's been a bit of a tit-tit-for-tat in terms of all of it all. Of it all. I don't think Michael Gunner and, the, and his government are going to budge on the figures that they are using. They still maintain that their figures are accurate. Federal data says that um, they choose Medicare addresses from their, uh, to, to determine their data and the discrepancy is now becoming wider. So I believe from last 
seeing the data, the federal stats say that the Northern Territory is currently at around about 68, 69% fully vaccinated. While the Territory, I actually saw a post on Michael Gunner's Facebook page today saying that we're closer to 80%. Right. So those things are going to be, it remains to be seen. Um, I think there's been some criticism about, well, when you get to 100%, you're going to still see people saying, well, our communities haven't been vaccinated. And, well, does that mean that your fully vaxxed percentage rate is going to get to 110%, which doesn't make sense. Um, and in saying this as well, like Gunnar has, Michael Gunnar has also called on the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisations to have their data um, uh, or be supplied to the Northern Territory government which means that um, the Ghana government can uh, effectively respond to any crises that might happen in those communities regarding a COVID outbreak. Yeah. So currently they don't have that data. Um, so places like Umbladawich or Kintor or Jinjiporta, which are serviced by the Archos, send their data to a place called the um, Australian Immunisation Register, but the Commonwealth batch all that data together and make it part of a larger group. So, for example, uh, data from Gingy Porter, Santa Teresa, would have uh, only just a bit part in terms of the whole data of Alice Springs, yeah. Central Australia. Does that make sense? I hope I'm yeah. making sense. <laughs> but essentially what, what this means is that, you know, Ghana is getting this data for the larger area rather than having, you know, that data for those communities, um, he, he says that it causes issues for him for the roadmap out. And hence, that's why we see those uh, restrictions f that have been recently put in place for people who need to go out to those remote communities to wear masks, have a test before you go out, and yeah. that's even past, that's going to come into effect from Monday. Okay, and on to our next story. Uh, there's been some obviously concerning news in regards uh, to deaths in custody. Yeah. Uh, what's the latest there, So both of these deaths in custody happened in Sydney. Uh, a 26-year-old Aboriginal man died in custody after being found unresponsive in his cell at the Shortland Correctional Unit on the, well, this past weekend. Um, the man's death is the second reported death in that prison this year, sadly, um, in April, another Aboriginal man died at the facility. Um, a coronial inquest will be conducted into that man's death. Um, the second death in custody, and I suppose you could say more widely coveraged uh, event, was where a man was shot dead by police in his home in Western Sydney. Um, he had been identified and been named in some media outlets, but um, uh, and uh, his family have um, also identified him as Stanley Russell. Um, the family have been very vocal, which I'll get to in just a second, but police claim that officers um, arrived to his home to arrest him on, on a charge, which is uh, uh, which we don't... I, I haven't been able to find, uh, but he allegedly confronted officers with a knife and an axe and a brief struggle occurred, but um, the family dispute this. The family say that uh, this didn't happen. There were different events that happened. Um, 
and that there should be a police investigation that is not nonpartisan or, or independent, um, and basically saying that the um, uh, events given by police are, are disputed. Uh, it all comes to uh, a protest that happened in Sydney uh, yesterday where families of people who had lost relatives uh, due to being in custody, well, not due to, but when they were in custody of police and uh, correctional services, uh, the families of those people gathered on the steps of Sydney's Parliament House for a Black Lives Matter protest in memory of the uh, 11th anniversary of the death of Gomoroi man Mark Mason Sr., who died in custody. And uh, there was some words to be said there as well, which is, as we know, an ongoing issue for Aboriginal people in this in this country. Mm. Well, on that note, Philippe, thanks so much for joining us uh, to give us a wrap of the news from, the, from across the week. No worries, Kyle. Thanks. And thank you for tuning in to Strong Voices today. If you did miss any of the stories or wanted to listen back to the show, you can head to the Karma website. It's karma.com.au. We're posting up a podcast of the show as well. And uh, if you're here in the Territory, it is still a good idea to make sure you have a look at uh, the coronavirus website. So coronavirus.nt.gov.au can give you some of the latest data there. And there's also a hotline there as well that you can give a ring if you have some questions. Uh, It's 1-800-490-484. Thanks once again and have a great weekend.